And uh, good evening. It's a joy to be here. You don't know me, but who cares? Uh, your pastor doesn't know me, but who cares? Uh, but he trusted enough to where he could go make a visit and say, I think that guest preacher will be okay with all of my people. And at least that's what we think. And uh, so let's just be in prayer. Teenagers, uh, I've been in much prayer. I know our church, Freedom Baptist Church in Rural Hall, North Carolina, has been in much in prayer. Uh, anytime I travel, I've got a huge group of gray-haired ladies. Preacher, you tell me where you're going so we can pray for you. And uh, I say, yes, ma'am, I could use all those prayers. And uh, so there's some folks already texting. They, uh, Again, they're sweet people. They don't know about the hour time change. They're already asking me, how was the service tonight? I'm sitting down here going, it hasn't started yet. And uh, so, but, but, but looking forward to it. Good to see uh, the grubs, well, half of them, and your kids. And uh, we were with them in Arkansas together. And uh, what a joy to just be. She, she goes, hey, you remember me? I said, no. And, uh, but anyway, no, we reacquainted and uh, laughed a little talk. And then I met the Coates family back here, and uh, they lived in California. I was born and raised in California. So we were just uh, talking about how good it is not to be in California right now. And, uh, but anyway, I won't labor very long. Uh, I didn't come here so we could get to know each other per se. That's not my primary goal. My goal is that we would see Jesus. And so if you have a desire to know more about God, if you'll let me take the word of God tonight, and let's just shine a bright light around and see what we need to get fixed in our lives to have a better relationship with him. That's my only goal. Uh, throughout the next few days, hopefully the teenagers and I will cut up and laugh and have some fun and be able to learn some things from the word of God as well. But again, ultimately at the end, that we would be the best Christians that we could possibly be is the goal, all right? And uh, so with that, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Galatians, uh, book of Galatians chapter number one. Lots of things I want us to see here. As I've now been working with teenagers close to 30 years, it's been 27 years now, uh, God has uh, helped me, I think, to help young people. How many of you understand that those of you who've been married, my wife and I just celebrated our 26th wedding anniversary, that there are things I know now as a husband, and I do things now as a husband at year 26, that I look back at the young husband and say, what an idiot, right? And there were things that the young youth pastor did that this youth pastor looks back and says the same thing of Clint Fredericks. And so uh, I pray that these next few days and nights uh, at the teen winter retreat can be something you'll just let an old youth pastor, when I say old, just been doing it for about 28 years now, um, and things I've seen, and I just want to be a help and blessing, okay? Uh, with that being said, we, uh, my wife and I do teach an adult Sunday school class at our church at Freedom Baptist Church, and uh, we still run the youth department, and that's a joy and a blessing. Uh, I may not understand all the technological things, but I have youth workers who understand all the technological things to keep me in the loop, right? And uh, so, so we try to uh, uh, impact and work with them. But even in our young adult class, I've, I've, I've gotten some folks and they've joined the church or they're new Christians. And um, I used to always give them the book of John. You know, you can find them in bookstores or just tell them to get a Bible and start reading in the book of John. But I think in the last five or six years, as I've dealt with new converts, I've had them read the book of Galatians. 
And uh, it's amazing how many similarities you see with people's upbringing, especially in North Carolina. Everybody grew up in church, right? You go door knocking, and we still go door knocking, and you ask people, if you're to die today, do you know for sure you go to heaven? They say, oh, my daddy's a preacher. Oh, my uncle's a preacher. Man, I was born in the nursery. I was going to get into all that stuff. And because they have that religious background, it's hard for them to admit if they're saved or lost. That's the tough part. And uh, religion does not equal spirituality. Religion does not equal salvation. And uh, so, so we try to help folks, but some people do realize their need. They get saved. And I, I try to get them to go to the book of Galatians. Now, Galatians was written by Paul. How many of you are... are <laughs> You don't have to raise your hand because I know the answer. How many of you are sick of this pandemic that we're in? And you keep hearing things like this. Yeah, as soon as this thing's done, I can't wait to get back to normal. Or they'll say, well, what's going to be the new normal? But what if there is no normal? What if there is no new normal? Think about this. What if there's better? You think about the transition that took place with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what the Jews were thinking. They wanted that physical kingdom. They wanted that come down, wipe out Rome, wipe out these Gentiles, and let's establish a kingdom. And they weren't really thinking spiritually. And there was a transition of you don't need to sacrifice lambs anymore. You don't need to spill blood anymore. You don't need to come to Jerusalem three times a year. You, no, no, no. There's a new thing. I'm sure they were just thinking, when are things getting back to normal where we can just sacrifice again? What's this grace stuff? What's this liberty stuff? What's this, what's this walking with God? I mean, what, what, when are we going to get back to No, no, what if there's better? And the Apostle Paul took that message of better and went all the way around the coast there of Greece and Sicily and Crete. And he went to cities like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Thessalonica and, and, uh, and Berea and Corinth and the area of Galatia. And as he took this gospel message that... Jesus is greater than the law. You don't just have to obey the Ten Commandments. It's a relationship. He was trying to tell them there's something better. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see every city he went to. You know, I am debtor both to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And, and he goes, but every city he went to that had a synagogue, he went to the synagogue first and taught the Jews. And then the rest of the week, he'd teach the Gentiles in the marketplace, in the streets, and along those ways, and he'd teach the gospel there. And as he's teaching all that, they'd plant churches sometimes, they'd leave Timothy, they'd leave Silas, they would leave certain people there, Jason was the name of one man, and then, 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 then Paul would go on to another area. And then Paul would always circle back and come back to visit these churches. And sometimes if he couldn't get to the church, he would write a letter to these churches to be sent back. That was New Testament discipleship. It wasn't one, two, three, pray after me, all right, you're going to heaven. Uh, if I never see you now, I'll see you in heaven. It wasn't that. It was, hey, guys, let's go back to Iconium and just check on the saints. Let's go back to Derby. Let's go back to Lystra. And here in this particular time, he did not get to go back to Galatia, so he said, I'm going to send a letter, and if you could carry this with you guys and take it to the people at the church of Galatia. Because my heart is heavy that they're more, they need to understand that salvation is more than just escaping hell and going to heaven. It is growing in your relationship with Christ. And so as Paul writes this letter, let's quickly, as we finish the introduction, look with me in chapter 1, 
verse number 6. Chapter 1, verse number 6, where Paul, in the opening of his letter, says this, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him. He didn't say from the church. He didn't say from our religion. He goes, man, I marvel that you're removed from him that called you unto the grace of Christ unto another gospel. See, the Galatians were trying to get back to a works type of thing that I got to do these things to gain God's love. No, no, no. God loves us unconditionally. And it's hard for some people to understand that. I get it. And so we do not work or serve to gain God's love. We work or serve because of God's love. Because I'm grateful for his unconditional love. Because I'm grateful for his leading and his guidance. I want to show my love back to him. Because love is an action. And every wife in here said, amen. Too many hard-headed men said, well, I told her I loved her at the altar. And I told her if it would ever change, I'd let her know. No, love is an action. And it needs to be shown and if I'm going to show God or reciprocate love back to him, I do it through action. And he says, I marvel that you're so moved from this with another gospel. But verse 7, he says, which is not another, but, but uh, there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. He then goes to uh, chapter 2, look at it real quickly, verse number 15. He reminds them in Galatia, because it's not just the Gentiles, but some Jews were getting saved as well. And he said in verse 15, We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. And so we can see that take place there. Uh, chapter 3, verse number 1. And it says this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? You show me someone who used to be in church and used to be faithful who no longer is, and I guarantee you there's a, there's a who connected to the reason why they're not. You show me someone, you know, uh, that's one of the most difficult things to hear someone say who've been in church. I used to. I used to drive the bus. I used to go out on soul winning. I used to be more involved. And I know health, age, this, that, I... But that's not always the case. There's always a who that knocks off someone's faithfulness. There's always a who that knocks off someone's dedication. There's always a who that knocks off. And that's what Paul was telling him in verse 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? And he goes on there. And then, of course, we, we, we see in chapter 5. Uh, verses 17 through 26. I'm not going to take the time, but that is the great passage about what takes place in the life of every Christian. There is flesh and there is spirit. And the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit warreth against the flesh. And uh, you know, which one wins? The one you feed the most. You feed your flesh, your flesh is going to win. You sow to the Spirit, the Spirit then can win. We'll talk about having devotions that teenagers can have a walk with God, God and I time, time alone with God, quiet time, devote, whatever you want to call it, you can have it. And every time I have my time with the Lord, I always end with this, Father, I yield my spirit to my body. I mean, I yield my body to my soul, my soul to my spirit, and my spirit to your Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct me, 
to walk the path that you would walk and help the people you would help if you were here in my shoes today. Every day I have devotions with God, I end it with that way. Because we need to die to self. We need to be led by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's what Paul teaches here in Galatians. And then the great passage of Scripture of restoration in chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore. Restore such an one. Um, in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. A great letter written to the people of Galatia who made professions of faith, who heard Paul preach the gospel and received it, but then someone came in and said, do you really believe all that stuff he was saying? And got them to stray a little bit. So Paul writes this letter and says, hey, let's get back to the basics. You see, because what we need to understand in our lives is that Christianity or the spiritual life, the Christian life, should be an outliving of the indwelling of Christ in our lives. It should be an outliving of the indwelling of, of the Holy Spirit that's within us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, it's not checking off a list of things to do because I'm saved. It's being saved and these things automatically coming out from us. Or we have to stir them up sometimes because they're in there. But Paul wrote to Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. It's in there, but it's been lying dormant. And now you're a I used to person and I used to be involved and I used to do this and I used to do that. Stir that thing up and get it back going again so you can be the Christian that God wants you to become. So as, as we see that the Christian life should be an outliving of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and as Galatians is a book used for all this, much like anything, there is a, 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 uh, an article written. And of that article, there's one paragraph that kind of summarizes everything. And in that one paragraph, there's normally a topical sentence or a statement, one statement that just kind of summarizes it all together. And I think the thesis or the summary or the topical statement of the book of Galatians is chapter number 2, verse number 20. I want us to look together at this as it is our text verse. And you read with me as we look at it together. The Bible says this, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Our Heavenly Father, tonight, as we look at this one verse, in the context of understanding that God has something better, in the context of understanding that there's a battle that goes on in the lives of a Christian, in the context of understanding that those who've been faithful, who got out of it, there's always a who connected. That may we see here in this one verse how the Christian life can be an outliving of the indwelling of Christ in us. God, I pray that this verse would be uh, jumping off the pages, maybe as we mark it, underline it. And God, we're asking for your Holy Spirit now to move in this building to help us and God, I pray that as a result of what's said tonight, that you would take it and help us to be better Christians for thee. And I ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.
Paul kind of just inserts himself to say, I know, I understand, I get it, I've been there. Remember, Paul, too, was a zealot for religion. He may not have been a zealot for Christ, but in his zealot for religious freedom, he thought he had to kill all the Christians and wipe them off because he knew in the Torah what it wrote about this type of living. And so he kind of understood, but he started off by saying this, I am crucified with Christ. Right there, I put in my Bible, is a moment to remember. He said, look, look, you remember me, but then there was a time where I was crucified with Christ. He goes, I want to let you know that the same God that I'm asking and praying to work in your lives is the same one that did a work in my life. There was a moment to remember. Uh, in August, I'll turn 50, and uh, I told my family, I'd like to be a 60-year-old youth pastor if the Lord would tarry and just allow me to still work with teenagers that long. I'd love to go to theme parks with my walker and all that stuff and see if I could have a good time. I just love being around teenagers. Uh, but, 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 but the older I get, uh, my, my, my kids tell me, we just had them all home for Christmas. As uh, my, my oldest is married now, my, my middle daughter, she's a, she's a grad student at Pensacola, and my youngest daughter, she's getting married in April, and as all the family was there, you know how it is, they want dad to tell the stories, because no one tells a story like dad. Well, the problem is, some of the, uh, some of the details get foggy in dad's mind these days, right? So they're setting me up, and I'm coming to spike it with the rest of the story, and then one of my kids goes, no, dad, that's not how it goes, you forgot this part, you forgot that part. And then, you know, the older I get, I'm thinking, look, don't let the details get in the way of a good story. Come on, I was rolling with that, let me keep talking. And, and uh, but, but, but man, I'm forgetting these things. I'm slipping these things. I, I want to blame it on COVID, right? We're blaming everything else on COVID. And uh, so, so sometimes there's just some things I'm not remembering. Uh, uh, we were eating dinner today. He goes, you remember when we worked on the bus route? And I went like this. We worked on the same bus route. <laughs> and uh, it's awful getting old. And uh, some of those things, I, I would forget little things here. But let me tell you this. There is one event and there are sometimes a handful of events that take place that you just happen to be a part of. Whether it was you just happened to be at the intersection when a car wreck took place, or you just happened to be here when that happened, or, and I don't mean this bad, but, but, but you teens may not ever understand if you're ever in the room with your spouse, not, not a friend or something like that, but your spouse when they give birth, when they bring life into this planet is one of the most amazing things that you get to be a part of when, when, when that takes place. And, and there's certain mo things that have taken place in my life, but there's one I'm telling you right now. A moment that I'll always remember is June 29th, 1990. That was the day I trusted Christ as my personal Savior. You see, I grew up in Southern California, and uh, they tried to fix the uh, problems in downtown Los Angeles. They had terrible scores well, they also had gangs going rampant in the, in the early, uh, late 70s, early 80s. The Bloods and Crips were everywhere. So this was our taxpayer dollars idea to fix it. They bust all the kids from the city out to the suburbs, and they were going to bust all the suburb kids into the city. How many of you understand that's not fixing the problem, it's relocating the problem? And uh, so to avoid the busing from our area of Reseda in the San Fernando Valley to have to go to Los Angeles to go to school, my unsaved parents tried to find a private school that they could afford to enroll me in. 
and they enrolled me in the Faith Baptist School of Canoga Park, California, Dr. Roland Rasmussen. And I, I, my, my, I remember my parents showing my brother and I a school handbook. And we had to get our hair cut. Man, we all had Sean Cassidy haircuts in the late 70s, man. You don't know who that is? That's okay. But the older people do. You know what I'm talking about. We all wore shorts and half t-shirts and socks that went up to our knees with three stripes across the top of it. That, but, but we're going to a Christian school now. And there's this handbook. And we have to have our hair cut, tapered, off the, uh, tapered in the back, off the ears. And, and uh, we have to wear uh, shoes that hold a shine for class and this and that. I'm thinking, my goodness, what cult are we entering you know, I was in third grade. I didn't really say that, but I'm trying to embellish a story a little bit. And uh, so, so, so as we talked about these things and I got in there, we had chapel. You guys have a Christian school here, right? How often do you have chapel? Once a week. Praise the Lord. We had chapel five days a week and a Bible class. I mean, you t- I mean, well, five days a week. Third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I heard more preaching as an unsaved Christian school student than most Christians did who just went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But listen, I had it all up here. I had nothing down here. From 8 in the morning till 3 o'clock, I was yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And man, that handbook was my Bible. That's what I obeyed. But at 3 o'clock when I went home, it was MTV, it was this, it was I could do what I want. Because my mom kind of threatened me and said, if you get demerits and get kicked out of this school, you will have to ride the bus and go to school in Los Angeles. So that's why from 8 to 3, I was a good little boy. To the point of this, we had in-school revivals. We had pack-a-pew night. We had teen rallies with pizza following. We had fifth quarters before fifth quarters were what they are now. And we'd come on. Man, we had it all. I was at every youth activity. I was at everything because that's where everybody was hanging out. And that's where all the cute girls were. So we hung out there. We were involved. We were doing all that. Then we got a new youth pastor. Our Christian school at that time in 1990 I've talked to Pastor Tim Rasmussen, who's the pastor now. We're good friends. We chat often. And uh, I think at that time, from K through 12, our Christian school had about 1,500 students. It was a good, strong Christian school there. You know how many came to the Wednesday night teen service at that church that had the Christian school? Two. Two. And the youth pastor gets there my senior year, Erica Pace, he goes, hey, uh, um, we want to double our Wednesday night service in attendance, and we need some kids. And so the assistant principal there, Mrs. Yoshida, um, at the time says, you need to get Clint Fredericks. He's a good kid. <laughs> so he comes and stops me in the parking lot of that school and goes, hey, Clint, uh, real quick, let me talk to you, buddy. My wife, Carol Ann, and I, we're going to take over this youth group, and we want to see people read. So I was just wondering, we're going to make some visits. If you want to, come with me. I'd like for you to make some visits with me. We'll spend time. We'll fellowship. We'll do all this. I looked at him because I had, I had been there for 10 years. I had seen the whole thing. I said, sir, listen, I, I respect you asking me. I said, but I'm not even going to heaven. Why in the world do I want to go ask someone else if they want to know if they can go to heaven? Thank you, but no thank you. And I turned around and went to my car and drove off. I found out later that in that parking lot, Eric Pacey prayed and said, God, if you'll give me time, 
I'd like to see that young man trust you as his personal savior. For the next eight months at school, Eric Capace dove into us as teenagers. He uh, had us over his house. We used to hang out with him. Did all, and uh, there are so many stories I could tell you. His wife uh, started her bout with ulcerative colitis. It almost killed her at one point. But we were over his house every Friday night and Saturday night playing Nintendo. And we'd be there at 11, at midnight, at 1. I could hear Caroline scream, Eric, I need you. We're like, oh, they're going to fight, and it's because of us. Uh, you know, we, we were just awful. And, and all that taking place, but he loved us. He cared for us. He loved us. He cared for us. I'll never forget that morning of June 29th, we had lined up to go to a L.A. Dodger baseball game. Fernando Mania was in full swing. We just won the 88 World Series, but on June 29, 1990, we were getting ready to go to the game. Fernando was in the later part of his years, but they were playing the St. Louis Cardinals. Brother Eric was a big St. Louis Cardinal fan. His brother Brett was a Cardinal fan, so we were going to the Cardinals-Dodger game. We got ready, and his, they, they had a friend named Max Hudson and a girl named Christine, the other girl that was invited for the youth group earlier, and so the five of us were going to go. We were in the apartment, uh, the condo, and and um, I remember walking over to Brett. I woke up that morning. I, was, I, I thought I had heartburn. But how many of you understand 18-year-olds don't really suffer heartburn too bad? It was, it, was, it was Holy Ghost conviction. I had 10 years of five chapel sermons a week just all racing through my head. And I knew for certain I wasn't going to heaven. I went to Brother Brett and I said, Brett, it's time. He goes, no, we're not leaving now. We got about 15 more minutes. I said, no, no, it's it's time. I, I think I need to get saved. And Brett felt that, man, my brother Eric is really the one that put all the prayer and investment in there. He goes, I, Brett says, I didn't want to talk to you about salvation. I wanted to go get Eric, but on his way to go get Eric, something, he forgot about it. So 15 minutes later, we get in the car and we're getting ready to leave. And as we start the car up, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop, stop, stop. They're like, what? I said, isn't there a verse in Ezekiel or something? I don't have them memorized, but does it talk about the watchman in that verse? They're like, what are you talking about? I said, you know, if he fails to warn those, right, if, if the impending danger is coming and he doesn't say that his blood is on, the, that their blood is on his hands. They're like, yeah, what's that have to do with anything? I said, well, if we go to this game and on the way to the Dodger game, we get in a car wreck and die, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, you're going to heaven, and you're going to heaven, I'm going to split hell wide open. And Eric goes, what are you talking about? I said, I want to get saved. And Brett leans forward and goes, hey, yeah, Eric, about 15 minutes ago, Clint came to me, and I meant to tell you, but I forgot. And so we're in Max's Honda Accord, and Eric goes, all right, Clint, come on out here, right there at the condominium. Every time I go home to California, I go to Fairlone and Shoop Avenue, because that's a condominium complex. And it's now a gated community, but I always go to that gate, and I look, I can see the very spot where Eric, we got out of the, evidently you can pray in one accord in the book of Acts, but you can't get saved in one accord. So we got out of the Honda and we knelt down and he goes, Clint, number one. I said, I know, number one, we're all sinners. Romans 3.10, Romans 3.23. He goes, yeah, that's right. I said, number two, you're going to tell me because of our sin, there's a price to pay for the wages of sin. Is I said, I know all that. I had to take the Bible test. I had to take it on my final. I've got it all up here. I just need to do the saving part. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And his death, burial, and resurrection is what I need to trust. He goes, that's right. He goes, so you pray. I said, pray what? He says, pray and tell God you want to get saved. I went, uh, uh, God, it's me, Clint, and I don't want to go to hell. And I'm going to trust your death, burial, and resurrection to take me to heaven so I can spend eternity with you. That was it. 
It wasn't the flowery speech. The way, it was the faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I stood up at that point, and man, there was a new name written down in glory, and it was mine. And I know salvation isn't an emotional, isn't an emotional experience thing, but I felt something that day. There was a weight. There was a, that heartburn I thought I felt a few hours earlier was gone. There was a peace that passeth all understanding. How many of you understand it's hard to live a peaceful life without the Prince of Peace? But man, that day I trusted Christ, and on June 29, 1990, I'm telling you, that was a moment to remember that I'll never forget. Oh, I may get the details of our ski trip wrong when my family wants me to tell that story. I may get the details wrong about when we drove through a Starbucks backwards just to prove a point to my kids because I hate ordering food at a drive through with my family. And I may forget the details of that vacation or the details of this, but I am not going to forget because that was more than just a southern testimony where we stand up and all start with, I just want to thank the Lord for saving my soul, and then we get into whatever it is after that. It was more than just a statement. It was more than just that. It was a moment to remember where my life was changed, where I say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ. It's a moment to remember. You knock on doors. Hi, sir, we're inviting folks to church. And then you get through the minutiae and you finally say, well, sir, if you'll never visit church, let me ask you this. If you were to die today, do you know for sure you get to heaven? Isn't it amazing the answers you get with just such a simple question? If you were to die today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? If you're wanting to have some fun, ask that to a coworker. Ask that to your neighbor and have fun as you listen to the answers. They'll answer everything but that. But I'll tell you this, you ask Clint Fredericks, I will always go to that moment to remember on June 29th, 1990. When was your moment to remember? Well, my parents tell me that when I was in junior church one time, I, I'm not asking what your parents told you. I'm asking what's your moment to remember. Well, I wasn't feeling real good one day, and I just prayed and said, God, if you'll help me feel better, I'd sure appreciate it. And I think since that day forward, I, I, I guess you could say, no, 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 no. Answering a health prayer is not the same as a salvation prayer. When was your moment to remember. Now look, I'm not saying you have to know all the details like June 29, 1990 like I do, but you should have a general knowledge of the details. Even Paul tells us, I don't know, it wasn't morning, it wasn't evening, it was somewhere around midday, and I was walking, I don't know exactly where I was, but I was closer to Damascus than I was at home, and uh, I do, I mean, at least there's got to be some sort of general knowledge of more than just, well, I hope I get there. No, you can hope not to get COVID. You can hope that when you're, you know, good night, Highway 49, those black and white state law signs, those are more suggestions if you live here, I guess. I was going the speed limit. I'm not brushing my halo off, but I couldn't believe how many cars were on my bumper, man. They're like, go faster, go faster. And you may get pulled over by the police officer and say, oh, I hope I don't get a ticket. And you may have these things. But one of the things you don't want to hope about is where you'll spend eternity. And Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. He said, that's a moment to remember. We need to finish, so we will. Number two, we see a miracle to recognize. He not only says, I'm crucified with Christ, a moment to remember. He says, nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. I want you to close your eyes right now and listen to me as I read that statement one more time. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, 
not I, but Christ liveth in me. You can open your eyes. That's a devotion in and of itself. If you will stop and pause and understand that the creator and sustainer of the universe lives inside you. I am the way, the truth, and the life lives inside of you. Well, I, let me take it back. To those of you who have a moment to remember, you have the door living inside of you, the good shepherd living inside of you, the bread of life living inside of you. I've not been here long enough and please, uh, if you, uh, just listen, to stay with me here. I don't know what the bad part of town is, but if I were to ask you a question, no strings attached, no taxes to worry about, I'll come over here, ma'am. If I were to say, what would you like, tax-free, no strings attached, it's yours, you just tell me where you want it, and it's there, a bungalow on the beach, a cabin in the woods, a rancher out in the country, a, 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 studio, a, a studio apartment, a, a beautiful suite apartment on the 40th floor downtown. Nah, we don't want to live in the city. Uh, whatever. But whatever that, a castle in England, whatever the choice is, what would yours be? She's like, I don't care. Just give it to me. I'm going to sell it and use the cash anyway, right? That's how we all think. But think with me on this. What would yours be? And think about this, no one ever says, what's the bad part of town? What's the bad city? What's the crime rate city of Mississippi? I don't know. Do you guys, was it? Jackson? <laughs> All right, Jackson. Everyone's like, amen. I finally got an amen out of some people. Praise the Lord. Jackson, Mississippi. No one says, I want a 400 square foot studio apartment in Jackson, Mississippi where the police tape is still across the front door and a chalk outline is in the living room slash bedroom slash kitchen slash bathroom. No one will ever say that. Yet think about what the King of Kings and Lord of Lords took up residency in when he left heaven and came down. And on June 29th, he didn't move in to a bungalow on the beach. He didn't move in to a rancher in the country. He didn't move into a 5,000 square foot with four car garage and four wheelers and this and that. No, 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 no. He moved into a studio apartment in Jackson, Mississippi with police tape all over it and chalk outlines. Unless you think you were really something that God took residency in, you were sadly mistaken, sir, because we are sinful wretched people who outside from the grace of God have absolutely no hope. You can dress it up as much as you want. You can spray on the best perfume, put on the best jewelry, make your social media posts look just that you are dressed to the nines and ready to go. But there's a sinful heart that resides in all of us who can know it. You see, we get a little prideful and think that God gets to use us, and we forget that, no, nevertheless I live. Christ liveth in me.
Have you forgotten about the fact that Christ lives in you? Oh, we sing, oh, be careful little eyes what you see, oh, be careful little ears what you hear, for the Father up above is looking down in love. Yes, that is true. But you know who else is looking? That Holy Spirit that lives within you also sees it. That Holy Spirit that lives within you also hears it. That Holy Spirit that lives within you also feels it. Yes, the Father up above is looking down in love, but we have a triune God. And just as much as God the Father is looking, Christ liveth in you. That is a <laughs> miracle to recognize. That deity chose to come and live in a sinful, wretched, dirty old single studio apartment from Jackson, Mississippi. When I could not go to where he was, he came to me. We see a moment to remember, a miracle to recognize. And then thirdly, as we keep reading, we see this. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith of the Son of God. <laughs> That's what I call a ministry to receive. If you listen great, and as we finish up, let me say this. Because Christ lives within me, by faith, I can now live the life that He has called me to live. See, I can only do that if I have a moment to remember. And if you have a moment to remember, there better be a miracle you should recognize that Christ lives within you. Well, why does he live within me? Because there's a ministry to receive. Christ, God has some specific thing he wants you to do. Some specific thing he wants you to do. And what he wants you to do may not be the same thing he wants you to do. And what he wants you to do may not be the same thing he wants you to do. And the same thing you're doing may not be the same thing he wants you to do. But God does have something for you to do. It's a ministry to receive. And you don't need to receive a paycheck from the church to do this ministry work. You see, there's a lot of Sunday school teachers who are employed by the power company who are doing a ministry work. There's a lot of good Sunday school teachers who are employed by the public school system who've been teaching for 10 and 20 and 30 years who are doing a good work for the Lord. There are those who are first responders and nurses and doctors who serve in our hospitals and communities during the week and they stand up and sing in the choir on Sunday who are doing a ministry work for God. There is some work that God has for you and you don't need to draw a paycheck from the church to do ministry work. There is a ministry to receive. You guys have a Christian school here. To those of you who are teachers, maybe this might help you. I was preaching a teen camp in 2012, 10 years ago. Ironwood, California, Ironwood Christian Camp there. The last stop of Barstow, right before you head to Vegas. All the Californians know that stop. Camp Ironwood. I was preaching a week of teen camp and was using some illustrations like I did today about growing up in Southern California, and, and, a, and one of the workers of the camp said, you mentioned a name, Nancy Willard. I said, yeah, she was my sixth grade teacher. He says, that's my grandma. I said, wow, small world. She taught me in sixth grade. And I said, this was in, two, this was in June of 2002. I said, greet your grandmother to me, for me. Just tell her Clint Fredericks is a youth pastor and just preaching the gospel. That was in June of 2012. In September of 2012, I got a letter sent to me to the church address. I have saved that letter. It was from Mrs. Willard. Let me read it to you. It says, Dear Clinton, a pastor? Question mark. Wow. Three exclamation points with all caps, W-O-W. -W. 
Not that I ever doubted it, even though I really wasn't the one who saved your life. It was my good friend Carol Jensen, she was the fifth grade teacher, um, who begged Mrs. Rasmussen to give me a chance with you in sixth grade. She saw your potential, Clinton, but so did I. When they gave me a chance to get to know you, I saw that from the get-go that you were neither bad nor mean, but simply active. I think today we'd call that ADHDD or something like that, right? But, but we didn't know that stuff existed in 1983. She said, so I had always been that way as well, so I understood. How you enjoyed those times when allowed to run the stairs, show off, and greet everybody. See, running the stairs was my punishment. I will not do it, but just imagine those stairs. We had two-story brick buildings. Room 36 was on the second floor. And in the first two weeks of my sixth grade class, I had 80 demerits. At 100, you get kicked out and expelled. I had 80 demerits, and all of them were classroom, dis uh, classroom disturbance and talking, and uh, basically those two, and they told it up. And my teacher said, good night, this guy, I either need to get a muzzle for him. or The, the bad part is she sat me in the front of class, right? Yo, you're the bad student. I'm going to put you right in front of the chalkboard. Chalkboard, not dry erase board. Chalkboard. But the problem is, how many of you understand, I've got an audience right behind me. And so the class clown was at work. And after two weeks, she understood me. And she said, Clinton, stairs. And I'd have to go outside and run down the stairs and up the stairs 20 times. Man, I'd come back into that classroom. I was too tired to perform. I couldn't say my zingers and one-liners and all that. I just, I just, I had to go to school. Man, I got good at those stairs. I started to realize about how long it took me to do the stairs. So she'd say, Clinton, stairs. I'd go to the stairs. I'd be outside. Hey, how you guys doing? I'm just, I'm just talking to everybody. Hey, what's going on? I got to wait a few more minutes to get my stairs done. Then I go back to class, psh, psh, spit on my, you know, make it look like I'm sweating. Oh, man, I'm so tired. Well, one of the teachers from the other class called this Mrs. Willard and said, Clint, she's standing out there. So now Melanie Crater had to come count for me. Oh, I hated Melanie. Melanie was the teacher's pet, straight-A student, this and that. So now when I'm getting in trouble, instead of giving me an marriage, it's like, Clinton stairs, Melanie counts. And I'd go out there and I'd go down the stairs, up the stairs, down the stairs, up the stairs. And Melanie go, that's 13. I said, that's 14. Miss Willard said, if you ever argued with me, you go back to zero. Argh! Finally get back into class. I'm too tired to perform. Miss Willard said, I knew you were neither bad, but just active. She said, I understood you. How you enjoyed those stairs and showing off. You never really needed demerits, just understanding. Then when you were in high school, I was so very proud of you and knew better than to attend a high school event because at that point, kids don't want to be reminded of their grammar school antics. But I snuck in, watched you play ball, and I left after every event, sad. She wrote, I knew in my heart, though, that someday you would understand. So let me just say it one more time, in all caps. She wrote, I am ever so proud of you. You listen to me. It goes on about some other personal stuff. She asked about my mom and 
told me about where she was staying. And at the time of this letter in 2012, she was living in San Diego. She is then now since, because of her health, lives with her daughter in Mount Juliet, Tennessee. I was preaching at Triple S in Arkansas, and I drove to the meeting, and I stopped in Mount Juliet, Tennessee four months ago. And I got to see Mrs. Willard, and I showed her this letter. And we wept, and we laughed. She's in early stages of dementia, close to her 90s now. But see, what she did in 1983 probably was viewed as ministry work because she was a Christian school teacher. But when she wrote this letter to a youth pastor in 2012, that wasn't because she was a staff member. That was because she chose to receive the ministry that God gave her, which was to encourage young people. And in my office that day, as I read that, I could not hold back the tears. As at close to 83 at the time I received this letter, she was still encouraging her students. See, a ministry to receive is not based on your paycheck. It's based on your obedience to God. So I say to us tonight, church, what is your moment to remember? Do you have a miracle to recognize? We all do. What's the ministry to receive? And then lastly in this verse, we see the motive to reveal. The motive, what's the reasoning of all this taking place? Paul tells these folks in Galatia, he says, your moment to remember, your miracle to recognize, your ministry to receive, but the motive to reveal of why it is all done, who loved me and gave himself for me. The whole verse is great, but the word that sticks out to me is, is and. Who loved me and... We said this at the beginning, love is an action. God didn't just say, I love you. It's like the bumper sticker you said, I asked Jesus how much he loved me. And he opened up his arms and laid on the cross and said this much. You were the reason Jesus came to earth, not so we could celebrate Christmas, not so we could have an Easter but so we could have a Savior. It didn't just cost someone something. It cost heaven everything. And because He loved you, and if you were the only one, He would have done it. But you're not. So on June 29, 1990, I received my moment to remember. And I'm spending the rest of my life not taking for granted the miracle to recognize that Christ liveth within me. And because Christ lives within me, by faith, I try to invest in people. I don't know how they're all going to turn out, but I know this, it's good to invest in people. Yeah, well, well, you know, Lifeway tells us that, that, that 7 out of 10 leave the youth group after high school graduation, and then five years after that, of the seven who left, Four more come back to God after they've sowed their spiritual wild oats. You know what I say to that step? So? Is that supposed to stop me from investing in people? The greatest thing of that stat is this, four of the ten. We, we, don't, we don't maximize the four of the ten that got it. 
We don't maximize that of the seven that left, four that come back. There's four more prodigals coming home who need a father to hug their neck, to squeeze them and say, welcome back. What can I do to help you? Kill the fatted calf, get a ring, put a robe on them, and let's celebrate that they're here back. So five years after graduation, we got eight out of ten. That's pretty good. I'd rather all eight just stay. But at the end of the day, those are just stats. I tend to look at the real people. Stats are taken from a group of people that I'll never see. But the ministry that I try to serve to others in Rule Hall, North Carolina, and for these few days here in Mississippi and Hattiesburg, and uh, when I go to Rosebud, Arkansas for a week of camp, when I go down to, uh, to uh, uh, Cander, North Carolina for a week of camp, when I go back down over here to South Carolina for a camp and preach and teach, when I go to my Sunday school class every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and I get an opportunity to teach that, when I go to our Wednesday team service Wednesday night and get to teach that, I know this, I know stats say this, but I know this, it doesn't stop me from saying I'm going to help everybody I can. Why? Well, the motive is clear. Who loved me and gave himself for me? He did it for me. So he gives me the strength to do it for them. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I know I would have loved.